Hello, welcome to Stages. I'm your host, Peter Ayers, and I wanted to start this episode by sharing some exciting information. The Stages podcast will record live in Sydney for the very first time as part of the Ideas program at the 2022 Vivid Festival. Engaging and informative, the show is a vital chronicle of oral histories from Australia's rich arts heritage. The podcast has featured 285 conversations thus far with creative artists and performers from a range of performing arts disciplines. This three-series event at Vivid will celebrate the contribution of three key elements vital to the art of telling stories. On Thursday, June 2nd, my guest will be producer Carmen Pavlovich. Thursday, June 9th, we welcome costume designers Jennifer Irwin and Julie Lynch. And the series is completed on Thursday, June 16th, when our guest is the artistic director of the Griffin Theatre Company, Declan Green. Tickets are free, and to register, just visit the Vivid website and search for Stages Live. There are going to be three fantastic conversations, and it'll be great to have you in the audience, watching Stages on stage. We look forward to your company. And now, here's today's episode. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hi there, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Terence Clark was the guest of Stages in Series 3 of the podcast. A jack of all theatrical trades, our conversation found a focus on his career as a composer of such vibrant Australian musical theatre works as Summer Rain, Variations and The Venetian Twins. However, there is much more to Clark's contribution to the arts in Australia. It is vast and passionate. Terry's work as actor and director are also ripe for the record. He has acted in English repertory and for Nimrod he played Horatio and Rosencrantz to John Bell's Hamlet and a few for the National Theatre Company Perth where he was also for over two years Arnie Nimi's associate director. Terence was foundation artistic director of the first regional professional theatre company in Australia, the Hunter Valley Theatre Company in Newcastle. He's also been the artistic director of the Playwrights Conference and head of directing at NIDA. Terence is a wealth of theatrical knowledge, and how fortunate are we to be able to access that, along with his incredible passion, opinion, and humour. Here's Stage's second conversation with the erudite Terence Clark. It's recording. We're running. We're running. Do I start or do you start? Well, 
we'll just we'll just feel the moment and and begin. Where would you start if you could start? I may be one of the few living people who can say they've appeared on the stage of the Minerva in King's Cross. I was at a kindergarten called Christopher Robin in Darling Point and we all dressed like little Christopher Robins in green striped shirts and green sou'westers and green shorts with a, a fly, a butterfly fly. And there was a woman called Heather Gell or Jell, G-E-L-L, who did Eurythmics. And she'd go around kindergartens giving classes and once a year she would put on a big spectacle. <coughs> and uh, it would be, I think, 1940 or 41, she put on Morris Maitalink's The Bluebird. Huge cast of children, of course. Uh, and we gave two performances, a matinee at the Minerva and a matinee at the Old Theatre Royal. Uh, <coughs> uh, and I actually had one line. Uh, there's one scene which I think might be Act Four, which is set in the future. And my character, I played a character called the boy lover, not the boy lover. <laughs> There's quite a difference. <laughs> there is. And I had one line. I was about to be born and my sweetheart, the girl lover, was not. And my one line consists of four words. No, no, she too, which I remember <laughs> after 80 plus years. Well, that's not a bad start. But, but um, in that first conversation that we had, and welcome back, Terry, and thank you for, for, for this, this moment in time to, to record part two. But we focused on your career as a composer. Yes. And such wonderful Australian musicals as Variations <coughs> and Summer Rain and The Venetian Twins. Uh, I think it's important that we, we now have a conversation about your careers as, as an actor and also as a director of note. Mm -hmm. um, you're a very popular listener, I must say, in that first episode. A lot of people uh, loved it, so they'll be delighted that you're back. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise you. there was a number counter. Uh, uh, you are uh, a member of the Order of Australia, AM, for services to the performing arts as a director, actor, writer, composer and educator. Do you ever stop and, and become overwhelmed at the enormous contribution that you've made to the arts in Australia? No, no I, I, I don't think so at all. Uh, I mean, I, I delayed my start until I was over 35, really. Because uh, you'd had a career in education? But yes, because mm. I was teaching maths in that period. Although in the middle of that, I did go to England. In fact, in 1959, I went to England with the intention of becoming an actor and my family thought they were never going to see me again because I hated Australia, I hated the Australian accent, I hated the shape of the country, I hated the sorts of lives we led and incidentally in in the 50s it was a pretty wowserish life we led, you know, with everything closed on Sundays, etc, etc. And I was very lucky. 
I was on a ship from, um, <clears throat> it was called the Fair Sky, the Greek line, and uh, when we got to, the night before we got to Italy, there was a fancy dress ball and the next morning was a Sunday, I recall, and I went past the mailbox and being an old schoolie already, by the time I'd been teaching for three and a half years, I so there was a postcard for me which said, in case you didn't get our letter to Aden, meet us at the Amex in Rome on Monday, no date, uh, for and spend a fortnight in Greece with us. It was my old friend John Mather who was travelling with his old friend and not quite so old friend of mine, Craig McGregor, and John's girlfriend, and uh, I'm so excited by the thought, and I must have been much more courageous in those days because I arranged for all my stuff to go through to into storage in England, where incidentally it, it, in Southampton, where it remained my entire time in England. Uh, I never took it out, uh, and um, I borrowed some money from one of my school friends, David Jones, and uh, we we took a, we got off at Naples, took a, an electrico up to, um, a rapido up to uh, Rome, found a pensione, and it was Sunday, the next morning, Monday, I went to American Express, it was absolutely crowded with young Americans. I forced my way to the counter, no, nothing for you, so I forced my way out, and as I left, they entered. It was a, the sort of thing, if you put it in a novel or a film, you'd say, oh, that's a bit coincidental. But it's true, it's happened. And uh, we went to Greece, we came back. We went through France, and we were, I can't remember which, I don't remember the names of the ports or which goes to where, but we were going, we were not. We were going to uh, leaving, but we missed the last ferry, so we had to go. I think either from Cherbourg to somewhere else, or from somewhere else to Cherbourg, whichever it was that communicates with Dover. We would not have landed with Dover had we got on the other flight. And as we passed through Dover, we got there just as we passed through Canterbury. I mean, at the exact moment of it was eight a.m and the bell was ringing for early morning communion. And John was a practicing Anglican, and Craig was interested in churches, and I was a practicing Anglican too, so uh, still am. Uh, we went in, and at the foot of the entrance to the, the uh, I can't remember the name, the technical name, but it's sort of enclosed the choir, I think it may be called, where we, where we all sat, not in the main body of the church. There was a man, very tall, in a, some sort of clerical robe. And I, because we were smelly, we'd been staying in youth hostels, and at that time I think the French youth hostels were the worst in the world. And, uh, we looked bedraggled, and I said, it's all right if we go in like this. He said, of course, dear boy, of course. And then we went. And as soon as we had 
taken communion, we all decided to leave. But he got there before I left. And he said, is this your first visit to Canterbury? And I said, yes. Um, I've only been in England, and I looked at my watch, one and a half hours. <laughs> and he said, oh, where are you from? Because I, so I sounded like an Englishman in those yes. days. I don't know. <laughs> not, not to an Englishman, anyhow. The, <laughs> I said, Australia. He said, oh, what school? I said, sure. He said, oh, my dear friend Robson. And he said, uh, we must stay in touch. Uh, and in, I gave him my address, which gave him a bank. And next day there was a letter from him. And I was staying with another friend, John Davy, now dead, in uh, Redcliffe Gardens, I remember. Um, and... I'd come to England to act. So I went to see, I looked up the pink pages or white pages, whatever they have there in America, in uh, London, and I found a theatrical agent. I went to this, this guy I went to was from Central Casting as an agent. He looked ratty. He had a bristle and a hat on in the office. And he said, uh, I, I, came in, he said, yeah, well, show me your CV and, and your, um, and your, and your eight by 10. I, 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 said, I said, show me your portfolio. I said, show me your CV and your glossy. I said, I'm afraid, oh, get out. <laughs> <laughs> An actor prepares. An actor prepares, yes. Uh, and um, <clears throat> so I didn't know what to do then. I, I, I went to, oh, at the time in Sydney, my older listeners will remember there were the Mrs. Tildesley, Beatrice and someone Tildesley who lived in Mulara, and they would come and see plays at university. Because you have to remember that uh, at that time, the only people who did Chekhov or Shakespeare or any classic were the universities and the little theatres like the Genesians or the Mercury, a couple of others. And they could see everything and they would invite certain university people to uh, sherry and biscuits occasionally. So I thought, oh, the British Drama League, I'll go and see them. And they were terribly interested in me until they realised I wanted to be a professional. Oh, no, dear. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> we're, we're not professional. <laughs> what do you need to do? She said, you need to go to RADA. So I, uh, I went to RADA and I spoke to an awfully nice guy. He said, uh, yes, I think you should make an application. I was 24. I think you should make an application um, um, in September. He said, in the meantime, what you should do is get a job as an actor ASM. I said, well, I'd love that, of course. And I said, but I don't know any reps. And he said, gave me the list of six, to which I added a seventh, the uh, Marlowe Theatre in Canterbury, which I had I'd seen a sign when we'd been in the car park to the Marlowe Theatre. And of course, you all know there was only one positive response. In fact, there was only one response. And it was a telegram saying, ring me, AS, ring me reverse charges ASAP. 
and uh, the man's name was uh, Anthony Richardson. He was the artistic director, not Tony Richardson, who said, um, can you come down tonight and see the show and, and we can meet you and discuss it? Of course, the reason he asked me to ring was to see how I sounded in Australia. And as I said, I, I really did. Say, with people who said to me at the time, you're English, of course. I was saying, no, I'm Australian. But I did sound English. I, that's the way I was brought up. And uh, the, he, on the spot, he said, uh, I want you to start tomorrow. They had just had someone leave, and it, it, as if it had been, again, something which is hard to believe because the coincidence, they had just had a, and my letter arrived on that very day that they needed someone quickly. Timing. Timing. Yeah. Uh, and so I spent time there, and I started off as an actor at ASM. I ended, well, I was there for about a year. I acted as a, I was the juvenile lead by the time uh, I left. And that was repertory theatre, wasn't Rep it? Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. So d define repertory theatre for the listener. Um, we did, well, there were, there were four sorts of repertory at the time. Monthly rep, they did 12 plays a year. Three weekly rep two weekly rep and one weekly rep. We were one weekly rep. <laughs> we did a new play every week. Every week? Every week. Uh, and it could be Shakespeare, it could be a two-hander. Would the size of your role change? You'd have a, a small role for one play and then Oh, at the beginning I had only tiny roles. Tiny roles, but, but some actors would have the leads in every, every week? So all that oh, text no, we had, to learn? We had a leading man, a leading lady. We had a... A sort of a useful woman and a useful man. Both of them could play older or younger. And we had a number of younger people who were actor ASMs, many of them just out of drama school. Would it work a bit like opera too, and that some actors were known for their Charles Condamine in Blythe Spirit or their, oh, <laughs> or their Romeo? No, no, no. no, no so they would revisit The company that. wasn't big enough for that. It, right. it employed, apart from the people I've said, um, uh, a full uh, stage director. I think there were four or five, maybe a change while I was there, four or five actor ASMs, all young. Um, uh, a scene designer painter, very good she was. Um, and I don't think, I can't remember what else we had. Oh, oh we had, of course, an electrician, a lighting man. Uh, so we would, some reps apparently opened on Monday and didn't have Sunday off, but we did. I don't know how they coped with that. We opened on Tuesday. Yeah. On Wednesday morning, as an actor ASM, my day always started at 8.30 or sometimes 8, uh, where I had to return the props from the previous... Um, evening's performance. From the previous yeah. evenings, which had closed on the, on the Saturday night. Then, then I had to get back for our first reading, which was at 10. There was no reading. We, we, we plunged straight into blocking. Wednesday afternoon matinee, Wednesday night performance, Thursday morning act two, if there were three acts, Thursday afternoon act three, if there were three, Thursday night performance, Friday morning, uh, maybe polishing up bits and pieces, Friday afternoon, run Saturday morning tech run with 
no, sorry, not take run, run, but not on stage in the rehearsal room. Saturday afternoon matinee, Saturday night performance, after which the ASMs and the production director, I think it was called, uh, <coughs> an old hand uh, called Cedric, he, um, we'd, we'd, we'd strike the set, sweep the floor, bring in the lighting bars, re-rig, send them out, um, set up the, the, uh, the next week's sets, if there's more than one, we'd do the last set first, and the first set last set was in place for the, uh, the dress. Monday morning, by this time I would have to go, I, I, I'd been out in the mornings when I wasn't working uh, as an actor or, an, uh, or on the book, uh, either finding or making or borrowing or renting props. And so they would have to be gathered on the morning of the, of the Monday, Monday afternoon, tech, Monday night, dress, Monday afternoon, second dress, Tuesday afternoon, second dress, and it begins again. You're really thrown into the deep end, aren't you? But, but, but a great way to learn. Peter, it was the most extraordinary learning experience of my life. And I understand now that there is no actor ASM because it's thought to be too hard. I would willingly have done it. it that period was the most extraordinary period of my life. What plays are you doing? I think the reason I had to, they was looking for someone urgently because they were in rehearsal for a, for a Twelfth Night. No, not Twelfth Night. Another Shakespeare. And we rehearsed for two weeks with Shakespeare, during which time they brought in another director because the artistic director directed nearly everything and did a two-hander, which was rehearsed in London, and they brought out, and so it had nothing to do with the company. It was so that we could have the luxury of a second week of rehearsal for Shakespeare. <laughs> and uh, I think they needed someone quickly because they, there was no way of juggling parts. They needed this extra person. And as to ASMs, there were four or five, as I say, often we were all in a Shakespeare, we were all in it. Mm. And the person would be in the prompt corner with his finger on the point. The next person would come in, point, and I, so you'd have to take really, it for a bit like being on the book and tag, calling the show. Tag team wrestling. Ah, oh, like tag wrestling, exactly <laughs> like that. And you have to remember, in addition, there were no tape recorders in 1959-60. So we had, uh, and I don't think we even had LPs. There were 78s. And if we had a sound effect, we had to find exactly the right group. There was some... <laughs> On the whole, it wasn't too bad. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we'd also, because it was shorthand, I, I would often pull the curtain, either the beginning or the end. I remember when we did um, an Unreal play set in a railway station. I can't remember what it's called. I think it's based on Oedipus. Um, I, I was on the curtain. And I remember I did it very, very slowly without any permission because I thought it was the artistically right thing to do. <laughs> but it was a wonderful time, absolutely wonderful learning time. And I feel sorry that, well, of course, 
there are no weekly reps, there are no fortnightly reps, there are no three weekly reps, there are only monthly reps now. And I think they are mainly probably subsidised by the lottery, the national lottery. Mm. I don't really know. Why did you return to Australia? Ah, what I haven't told you is that uh, towards the end of my first year, I, uh, of that year, 59, I was called up for uh, an audition at RADA for entry. Right. And um, we had to do a, two pieces, of course, a classical piece. I chose a piece they had cobbled together from the Duchess of Malfi, which was not a long speech, but it cobbled together by a number of speeches, leaving out the person in between. It was that famous speech after the, uh, after the Duchess is killed. Mine eyes dazzle, she died young by the, her incestuous brother who desired her, but had her killed. Uh, it's not a long speech as put together by the bosses at RADA. I was on the theatre, there was someone sitting at the side with a book and at the back of this theatre, darkened, you could see lights and a few glinting glasses. I would have said four or five, I couldn't tell how many people. In that speech, I dried five times. I was so disgusted with myself, I walked off. And I almost got to the exit and they said from the back, and what are you giving for us next, Mr. Clark? I couldn't believe it. You were obviously well prepared. Was it just nerves or...? I don't know. I thought I was well prepared. I thought I'd... It was a speech. I, I loved it. It may be because being cobbled together from a number of speeches, the no through line, there was natural. no real through line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, but I think that's being very careful, very, very kind to me. I just... Well, the, the second speech I had done just before leaving Australia, funny enough, at Cranbrook, where I wasn't teaching, but I, I knew that I knew a couple of people, well, the man who directed plays there. And we had done The Mad Woman of Shio, and I played the rag picker, and I'd had what you might call a small amateur success. And so I took a speech from that, which I knew very well, and I thought, it doesn't matter now. Uh, I, I, I've blown it, so I just do. And I hadn't gone very far, but there was a laughter, a laugh from the back, and then the laughter increased. And that, of course, only buoyed me up. <laughs> so when I got my letter saying I'd passed and they wanted to see me for the uh, scholarship auditions, I, uh, I was considerably buoyed up. But the member, the people in the company said, the, the leading man was a man called Frank Middlemas, a wonderful actor. A wonderful actor. He said, next year I'll be 40. He was, had been a major in the army. And when he left school, he had been intending to do medicine. He'd got into medicine. The war came. He worked his way up, became a major. Always wanted to act. So he didn't proceed with medicine, went into acting. He said, I'll be 40 and I think I'll be stuck in weekly rep for the rest of my life. I'm pleased to say that three years later, he was in Australia playing Sir Toby Belch to Vivian Lee's Viola for the RSC, that was a, a great pleasure. Um, I, but these people said, why do you want to go to RADA? None of them had gone to RADA. 
That's it. Oh, oh, that's not true. The two girls had, but the other, the men all seemed to work their way up through the business. Served an apprenticeship. In, Serving in an apprenticeship. Yeah. He said, after two, it was only two years then, he said, after two years, you'll be playing the roles you're playing now because I was playing the juvenile lead. And I said, well, I just felt that's what I wanted to do. That's what I'd thought of doing. Well, that, but I was something about a training institution which opens certain doors for well, you. Oh, I'm sure that's it. But I don't know if I knew that at the time. Um, perhaps I did. Anyhow, I went up. I like. I know what I did for my modern piece. I did a piece from uh, from Uncle Vanya, Astroff's speech, which ends up finita la commedia. I can't remember what I did for the classical. So I got a letter offering me a demi scholarship, half fees. Because I had said I couldn't attend without a scholarship. Because I really had no money. My father had died when I was 17. My mother had no money. Uh, and then, and then, I think the climbing thing was that towards the end of my that year, we did two plays for which they brought in a young talent from London. We did a play by Willis Hall and someone called The Long, The Short and The Tall, in which I was, I've often been seriously miscast, but never so seriously miscast as I was in this play, as a Japanese prisoner of war. <laughs> <laughs> I had had no. I, I tried to find out what a Japanese maker. <laughs> so it took me three hours the first day. Oh, I was terrible. And the second play was a, 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 a soppy play called Tea and Sympathy, in which I played the bully. I should have been the sensitive boy, mm. and the sensitive boy was played by who else than other than Terence Stamp. Incidentally, at that stage there were five Terences in the company which was unbelievable. Uh, I'd only ever met two other Terences in my life. All the same spelling? All the same spelling, T-E-R-E-N-C-E. -E. Oh, really? Yeah. And Terence Stamp only had one topic of conversation. His career, how Peter Ustinoff wanted him to be play Billy Budd in a movie, which of course he did, and wonderfully. Uh, and I thought, there are 10,000 members of Equity. I don't have this personal belief in myself, and the in, in, uh, and at the same time, I felt because I was still very religious at this stage. I went to Canterbury Cathedral every Sunday morning for communion or mass, as I would say, and uh, I thought. I think I'm more needed in Australia than in England. England doesn't need me. <laughs> and I'm not the Englishman I thought I was. And I decided to come home. Now, whether I did that for good reasons or for the negative reason that I was worried about how I'd get by, where I would live, where, what I would do, because for two years then I would have been uh, 25, 26 in those years, heading for 27, I thought, 
I'm, I've no doubt that was part of my decision, but I hope it wasn't the main reason. So I came back to Australia. In fact, I went to the school in, in, in the country where I'd been as a boy and taught there for two years before being headhunted to go to Cranbrook. Well, it's certainly a consideration, all of those things you just described, yes. um, in uh, entering a, a life in the theatre. Because mm. um, it is a very precarious occupation, uh, uh, being an actor, isn't it? And yes. There's no guarantees. In but... If, if, there, if there were sliding doors, that yeah. is the door I would take. Yes. To see, to lead a parallel life, to see what would have happened. I, I'm, by way of saying I'm a competent actor, how good an actor is, I'm not sure. And um, so who knows? But many people who are not great actors have careers and quite successful careers in, in England, in fact, very successful careers. So who knows? But I didn't. I came back and I thought, and the Australia that I hated suddenly seemed to be terribly attractive. But I know there were a lot of people who, around about my age, about that time, who couldn't stand Australia. Many of them returned later when Whitlam became Prime Minister. Uh, well, yes, the, the, for the, instance, the, John Bell went. He could have stayed. He could have stayed yeah. in with the RSC. He was getting leads there with. Uh, um, and, uh, but he didn't. Reece McConaughey could have stayed. He didn't. Yes. There was a um, an episode of, of of emotional maturity, perhaps, or who knows? I don't think I've ever been emotionally mature. But that's very kind. Of you. <laughs> <laughs> so, in nineteen seventy, you leave school teaching, and you commence with the Nimrod. Uh, what happens is, I can't resist telling you that. When I came back to Sydney in 1963 to be head of maths at Cranbrook, um, one of my fellow teachers from the, my previous bout there rang me up one day. It was round about the 22nd of December. I don't know how he got my telephone number. And he said, I, and we had gone to Spain together with Craig McGregor, which was not really a great success, but still. Um, he said to me, I'll come straight to the point, I'm in a pickle. I'm directing an ideal husband for the Pocket Playhouse at Sydenham, of which I'd never heard. Uh, and uh, I've had five leading men and they've all resigned. He said, well, you played Law Goring. Great I'm desperate. And I didn't think twice. I said yes. So that night I met him, I met and he put me through the moves. I said, unfortunately, tomorrow I have to go to a wedding in Orange. And I a friend of mine was going in her car. I drove her car and she fed me the lines. And by the time we got to Orange, I was word perfect. That has passed, not to do with my memory, it has to do with um, wild. You know, the right word in the right place. The words are beautifully put together. And uh, I think I could say I, I scored another personal amateur success. <laughs> <laughs> and I acted as an amateur during those years with uh, a group called it doesn't exist anymore, called uh, Graduate Theatre, 
which was a group of Sydney theatre graduates, all of whom had been there with Alan Kendall, very fine tennis player, a, a person who'd acted professionally, though I, in my opinion not a great actor, and a, a very a good director. He later became, he later, he always fell on his feet. He became the, um, the first boss of, uh, of a play school on the ABC. Great friend of Henrietta's. Uh, and after I left Cranbrook, I got a call from someone, I can't remember who, David Mitchell, I think, saying, would I be, he and, and Colleen Clifford were starting a group called South Coast Summer Theatre, and they were going to do three plays, Anything Goes, Loot, and I can't remember what the third one was. And I said, well, I really wanted to direct, I was, Lord, I was Evelyn, is it Lord Evelyn or Sir Evelyn in, in Anything Oakley. Goes? Lord even Lord, Evelyn I thought it was Lord yeah, Evelyn yeah. Oakley. And I, I directed Loot. And in the company was um, a boy who I'd taught at school. I was very lucky in my last year at Cranbrook, I may have said this, in directing the school play, I had both Andrew Sharp and Tony Sheldon, both of whom were in two or three years to be in the world premiere of A Hard God. And so we went down that and then I went and I, I had undertaken to teach at the International School Mathematics, which I did full-time for one year and, and only part-time the next, because uh, during that season of South Coast Summer Theatre, my f former colleague at, at uh, Cranbrook, Charles Coleman, um, no, he wasn't my former colleague. He was to be my colleague. He was, uh, he was behind me in music at Sydney University. He came down to see it with his wife and said, um, John Bell is looking for someone who can play the piano and act to be in something. They're starting, a, they're starting something called Nimrod Theatre. Would you be interested? And I said, would I be interested? I would love it. And so I was introduced to John it's very interesting, and I always made, told this story to my directing students at night, of that he didn't audition me. He asked me what I'd done and gave me the job, which was, I've said, that, I've said directors get too wanky about auditioning. auditioning. Right. I know of a very considerable actress who was very well experienced and a young director who had hardly ever directed, auditioning her for an hour and not giving her the role. And I said, she, you should have been auditioning him, not the other way around. However, uh, so out of Flash Jim Bow, um, oh, I got terribly sick. I was in Sydney Hospital with some unknown disease. And I believe it was my body saying, you need time for reflection. It wasn't a disease, it was a, viral, a virus of unknown origin. And I remember Chris Hayward came in to see me to say, would I be in the first show at Nimrod playing the piano? Well, I couldn't be. It, it was Biggles. Um, I don't know why he was asking me because he had no, maybe he was just testing the ground, but I, I wasn't well enough. But I was in the third one. Um, 
and that led to a tour and and then the next year uh, Richard Werrett asked me to be musical director of the revival of O'Malley and we went to the first South Pacific Festival of the Arts in Fiji and also to Auckland and then Arnie Nimi directed a revival of Flesh in in that second year and this is now 72 is it? Yes it's now 72 he directed a revival and that went on tour with Maggie Kirkpatrick who became a good friend uh, and when he was appointed artistic director of the State Theatre Company of Western Australia, he asked me to join as an actor musician and I said, well, I really wanted to direct. Now, Arnie Nemi is the most generous person in Australian theatre. He said, that won't be a problem. And in my first six months, I was acting mainly, uh, but I directed, first of all, a lunchtime show and then Jugglers 3 with Peter Rowley and Robin Nevin and uh, who was over there for a couple of plays and from there when I was I was there the next year he appointed me associate director not assistant director I was associate director from 73 4 no 74 5 and I applied to be the first artistic director of the Hunter Valley Theatre Company and got it. So it was Perth that your directing career began to evolve? Oh, yes, although I had directed earlier. I had directed a lot at school. I directed at Bathurst when I was in that previous time before I came down. And I also had directed a small opera, Bastienne and Bastienne, Mozart's very early opera for for the Music of Viva Easter Festival. I can't remember that year. I think it was 68, something like that. So I had directed a certain amount. Before we move into directing, let's let's finish off with acting. Yes. You, you played Horatio and Rosencrantz to John Bell's Hamlet. I did, yes. In fact, um, I couldn't be in the revival, which happened because I was already in Perth. But that was... Well, that was jointly directed by Richard and John... Uh, it had a pretty interesting cast. Um, Arthur Dignam, who I regard as just about the best actor we've ever produced, played Claudius. Uh, John, of course, was a wonderful Hamlet. Anna was Ophelia. Margaret, no, what's her name? A wonderful radio actress, very elegant, played Gertrude. She was terrific. I wish I could remember her name and uh, Brian Blaine and uh, and it was John's idea I imagine as much as anything to save on money that the the roles of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern be doubled with uh, Laertes and uh, Horatio each of them playing a good friend and a bad friend um, and we had masks for the bad friends, which we had to slip on very quickly. Only half masks, of course. Um, 
Oh, well, that was a wonderful experience and a wonderful lead into into going to Perth, which was where my directing, professional directing career really got going. In your latter career, you have returned to acting with your Donald Friendship. Yes. Yes, I... When I... Towards the end of John Clark, in fact, in his last year at as head of NIDA, he, he, there were two Aboriginal actors in, in the group and uh, he wanted to give them Aboriginal roles. And he had come across that trilogy by Dorothy Hewitt called The Wire Fences of Jarabin. Three plays which had been commissioned jointly, I think, by the Melbourne Theatre Company and who? Maybe the West Australian Theatre Company? And I think, uh, or maybe the South Australian, because Rodney Fisher was there. And Rodney offered to do one of the plays. She said, no, all three or none. And John said, if I do all three plays, that was his first idea, to do all three plays, so that everyone in third year would get a really good go. He realised that it would be most unlikely to get agents and casting directors and producers to come and see all three shows. So he went to Dorothy and said, can I do an abridgment of the three plays and call it Jarabin? And to everyone's surprise, Dorothy said yes. Mind you, she was very close to the end. And although we, on the first day of rehearsal, well, we didn't have the first day of rehearsal. It was her funeral. Oh, dear. Um, but there was a lot of... It's not a musical, but there were a lot of song. It was a play with music. And John said to me... He had seen me act at university, funny enough, when we were both, we were both of an age, uh, at a university drama festival, InterVarsity. He wanted me to play a, a wonderful character called Claude Rodder, a remittance man. Uh, and to play the mu- write the music and to play it. And that was very hard to resist too. Um, and a friend of ours, of Lynn's and mine, called um, Lou Klepek, came to see it. He said, I want to see you act. I want to see you act. I don't know why. He had been in Perth while we were there, but we'd never met him. Uh, he'd, been, he'd been director of the West Australian Gallery. And he came to see him. He said, I've written something for you. And I thought, most... I I wasn't terribly enthusiastic. And he said, I've made an adaptation of some of the Donald Friend's diaries, and I've called it An Evening with Donald Friend. And he said, I want you to do it. I said, look, I'm not really an actor. I'm not a professional actor. I'm not a member of equity. I think you should really get someone else to do it. And I read it. I said, I think it's wonderful. He said, well, look, will you do just one little thing? He said... Next Sunday, I have to speak at the Irvine Gallery on, uh, I think, Margaret Ollie, who was a great friend of Donald's. Maybe it was a joint exhibition. I really can't remember now, some years ago. And he said, I prepared a 10-minute excerpt. Would you do that? And I said, well, it wasn't really a performance. Yes, I would do it. And the clever bugger knew that... I- I loved doing it. So he hooked me and 
and uh, until the uh, until the cancelling of Donald Friend, that was that was something I did several times, uh, which I enjoyed very much. And then, more recently than that, even or concurrently with it, Bob Ellis gave me something he'd written called "The Word Before Shakespeare." To read, and I said, I think this is terrific. And he said, Well, I think we should do a reading of it. So we did a couple of readings, and freezing cold weather. I don't, we had an audience. In fact, we did one at Glebe at the uh, at books at Glebe books. Yeah, they do that regularly. And um, then he devised the idea of what he called anthology theatre, and he wrote. I suppose they'd go for about an hour and a half. I'm not quite sure. Something like that. He did one on on um, Lawrence Olivia. One on Ralph Richardson. Wonderful one on Clive James, which introduced me to his poetry. I had no idea he was such a poet. I think the man was wasted in doing those terrible pulp television things. Um, wonderful poetry. I'd, I'd say he's up there amongst Australia's best poets. He's just stunning. And maybe a fourth. Oh, yes, one on orators, which I wasn't able to do, and maybe four or five. And I love doing those. Uh, in fact, after he died, just before the Writers' Festival, his timing was pretty good, um, someone approached the Writers' Festival to do a one-off session and uh, so we had um, Simon Burke who'd done something like it the previous year, Andrew Sharp who'd been part of, of Bob's troupe, Munro Remus, or Rymus, I'm not quite sure what it is, me, Kate Sharp on keyboard and Anne Brooksbank, his widow, put together beautifully, I thought, from writings of Bob. Uh, and that was, that was the last time, it was the last time I acted. So that was four or five years ago. But I did, I went right off it for some reason, um, but I've, I'm right back on it. You're Anyone want what from me? You're, <laughs> you're a gun for hire again. Yeah, I'm a gun for hire, yes. <laughs> so in Perth, Developing your skills as a director, you're being mentored by Aninimi. How 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 do you evolve as a director? I, what, I, well, what look, you... I can't say he mentored me because he was never in the rehearsal room with me. He was my facilitator. I would never have directed professionally without Arnie. And I'll give you an instance. I've said he's the most generous man in Australian theatre. We had the wonderful Joan Sidney in the company, who's the best actor I've ever worked with. And uh, we did a musical with her. And it was I who directed it. We did Hello Dolly. She was immaculate. And because she was a member of the company, we were on tour with uh, Equus. We were the first theatre into Darwin after the uh, terrible cyclone. And she said, what, what are the plays? I said, well, you'll be playing the mother in a hard guard. She said, that's Australian, isn't it? I said, yes. She said, 
But she said, oh, I don't do Australian. I said, well, I'm afraid you signed a contract which says as cast. And she said, oh, I can't do an Australian accent. I said, yes, you can. And she said, well, will you correct me all the way? I said, of course. And she was, well, I saw Gloria Dawn do it. She was not worse than Gloria Dawn. Yeah. She was so wonderful. Yeah. At the same time, the best male I've ever directed, Jeff Gibbs played her husband, and he was fantastic. Wow. I wish you'd seen it. And the boys were playing 16, were both in their 20s, I think both 27, 28 or something like that. And you wouldn't have known it. And it's mainly because, as someone said, was well, Lynn said to me at the time, this is in 19, I think it's 1946. They've, they've just come out of a war. They've had to be the young men. They've had to be the fathers of the absent fathers in the family. And so they behave. And of course, the teenager was really only invented after the war, the idea of separate culture, of music, of clothing, and so on. Uh, I don't know how I got onto that. Maybe Jane Sidney. And uh, directing, developing and directing, skills as a director. Yes, yes. Um, actors, surely, uh, it stands you in good stead to be an effective director, having been on the other side of the... Uh... It is my proud and vain, probably, boast, hubristic boast, <laughs> I can tell from a production whether the director has acted or not. Really? Why? Mm. How? Because they often allow an actor to do make an obvious choice, which is not the right choice, in my opinion. Right. Um, I'm happiest at the theatre when I stop being a member of the profession and become a member of the audience, mm. which is what happened last Thursday night when I saw Hamilton in Melbourne. A brilliant production. Not a brilliant, not a brilliant show. Not a brilliant musical, but a brilliant production. It's the bugbear of us as theatre makers, isn't it, that you, you, it's rare that you can go to the theatre and, yes, become an audience member. Yes. I, I feel myself, and I shouldn't be really saying this, as someone who was once head of directing at night and, and, and took more than one candidate who'd never acted because I always said to them you've got to act you've got to learn what you're asking actors to do and they say oh I've been a actor I said that's not the same thing doing something three or four times is nothing you have to do it night after night for weeks find new things I said you have to know what actors go through mm -hmm. and I still feel that very strongly and there are very few directors I think Rodney Fisher is one uh, sometimes but not always Neil, um, who either by putting an actor through terrible stress, when I was directing a Happy and Whole Occasion in Melbourne, in the smaller theatre, the play box, Barry Kosky was directing a play, a woman had to walk over, barefoot over, some sort of crystals, maybe salt crystals, I don't know what they were, some crystals. She had to have a couple of nights off because of bleeding feet. Uh, I thought that was a bit much. Um, and also the director who said to an actor, 
after the first after the first performance of Mother Courage, there's a hole at the centre of this show and it's you. Oh, that director, who had never acted, mm. that's terrible. Mm. Mm. You just don't do that to an actor. No. Uh, Directors guide, but they also must nurture. That's a very good phrase. They must nurture. and I, I think they must... They must be able to do what any creative writer does, put themselves in the head, and, and in fact what a, an actor does, put themselves in the head of the character. In the case of the director, you have to put yourself in the head of the actor and say, what is it like to be doing this? How is it? And, oh, to know stagecraft, for instance. Many directors don't know stagecraft. Uh, so that's a personal buddy of mine. 1976 to 78, let's talk about you are the Foundation Artistic Director of the Hunter Valley Theatre Company, Australia's first first regional professional theatre well, company. How did, how did that all come about? I applied from Melbourne, uh, from Perth, and I had to give an idea of how what the company would be and what the budget would be. And I must say, <coughs> when I was at uh, Associate Director, Arnie gave me an awful lot of responsibility, um, including writing letters of engagement, you know, um, having a hand in planning the season, of course, reading plays, new plays, and uh, I was flown across for an interview from Perth, then flown up to Newcastle and got the job. Um, we were given use of an old high school, which was, uh, I, I, it was a Victorian Gothic building and I, it had, it was two classrooms divided by folding doors so that you'd actually have two classes. The same thing was true of All Saints at Bathurst. Uh, and it had a small office of it and it had lavatories down the back. And um, on the first, I put an ad in the paper. Uh, my first day of employment was, if appropriately enough, the 6th of January, 12th night of 1976. That's when we began. And I put an ad in the Newcastle Morning Herald saying um, we were having a clean up and any, any person who would like to uh, come and help clean up and if they could bring a mop or a brush or some bucket or whatever. And all sorts of people turned up, it was wonderful. And towards the end of the morning, craggy, granitic of face man turned up smoking, he said, uh, are you going to do my play? And I said, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I, I don't... Uh, uh, he introduced himself then, and I said, well, what play is that? He said, A Happy and Holy Occasion. I said, well, I, I, I don't know of it. No, he didn't. He said, A Happy and a Holy Occasion. Um, so he grunted and went off. Didn't clean up, didn't help, but that didn't matter. We had lots of helpers. Uh, and I had 
engaged a small company. I'd said six actors. Are they all uh, local Newcastle no, actors? No, none or of them. You're finding them from no, Sydney? No, no. I didn't. But they're all, I mean, if they had an agent in Sydney, they could have applied. I put the oh. word out to agents. And I was so lucky. Kerry Walker, Robert Alexander, Michael Rolfe. And just after Christmas, I'd received a phone call from Tony Sheldon. He said, I understand you're starting a theatre company in Newcastle. I said, that's right. He said, can I be a member, please? He said, all the only roles I ever get to play are sensitive young men. And he said, I'm sick of it. So I grabbed him with both hands. And Andrew Sharp said the same thing, but the next year, so I had both of them back again. Actually, I must have heard of a happy and holy occasion because I knew that the previous year to celebrate the opening of the Griffith Duncan Theatre at what was then this, the Newcastle College of Advanced Education, John Robson, the head of drama there, had persuaded the Students' Union to have an Australia-wide competition in two sections, uh, Open and, local, and Hunter Valley. And the local had been won with John Romrell's A Floating World. And the, the local one had been won with John O'Donoghue's A Happy and A Holy Occasion. I said to him, that's two different occasions. You have to drop the second A. So he did. I wanted to start my season with an Australian play, which in, 19, which in 2022 doesn't seem so extraordinary. But it's what Arnie had done in 1973, and it's what I wanted to do in 1976. And I looked at A Floating World, and it had, I, I, I put down 10 things I thought it needed. I was looking for a cast of six, this had seven, but I doubled one role quite successfully. Uh, Australian, one set, some local relevance, music. I can't remember what the other five were, but I think it, thought, it, it satisfied eight or nine of them. And uh, John Rommel and uh, his general manager both came up at our expense, I have to tell you. We had to supply the, the tickets and the... And, the and my, 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 my chairman, a man called Hartnell, who had been Chifley's secretary during the war and was now chairman of the Joint Coal Board, was putting money back into Newcastle by funding this, this theatre company. But he was very unhappy about the fact that one of their biggest customers was Japan. And of course, the floating world is about Japanese prisoner of war. But he allowed it, and I admire him for that. And he, his, his board didn't complain either. I, they worked very hard. We, we rehearsed a play. It was part of the remit, as I think they say these days, to go to tour the Hunter Valley. And we took that first play up to, first of all, Armadale, and then to Musselbrook, where the set had to be cut in two. It was designed by Larry Eastwood, but we didn't know the dimensions. We didn't even think about touring it and didn't mention it to him. 
and we were to perform on two nights and as we had no bookings for the second night we bumped out and a woman came uh, and uh, was told that she couldn't buy a ticket because we weren't giving a performance would cancel because there were no bookings and she said oh I only wanted to come so I could walk out I believe it's terrible <laughs> <laughs> and and I said to the, at the next board meeting, we had a board meeting once a month, I said, it is too big a strain, personally, financially, in every way, for us to tour the Hunter Valley. And so they immediately said, no, that's out. Just establish it in Newcastle before you tour. We, we were using a theatre, which I understand has since been pulled down, called the Arts Theatre, for free at the University of uh, Newcastle. On the board was the head of drama there, Professor Rob Jordan, who became a good friend and a great supporter. And as soon as I resigned, offered me a job as a teacher there, and later employed me as a lecturer at the University of New South Wales when he was appointed there. But I was worried about the fact that the audience that we were getting was in the main students, on the campus, of course, and the, what you might call the educated theatre-goer, that we weren't, we had to be in town. And so I made a decision which was probably not a good one, uh, and which the board okayed, that we would leave the arts theatre, which we had for free, and hire a theatre called the Hunter Theatre, which was, had been built as a theatre, then became a cinema. Uh, I had performed there when we'd done O'Malley there a couple of years before. Um, and so we only got to do two shows there. We did um, What the Butler Saw, and I had two wonderful Sydney actors. I, I, oh, I told my original six actors they had to leave. I said, it's not fair to you to ask you to do another year like this year. And so it, it absolved of any residual guilt they might think about leaving a budding company. I think Robert Alexander would certainly have stayed on. I think Kerry might have. I don't think Tony would have, and I don't think he should have. I don't think any of them should have. It was a gruelling year for all of them, and not very much money. I paid, I think, I paid slightly above equity minimum. So I had new new cast. I used some local people the previous year. I tried to use more local people up there. And as the two leads, I had both Alan Beecher and Pat Bishop. When I told people I was bringing in Pat Bishop, they said, you're mad. I said, why? She said, you won't be able to work with her. I had been to see her, first of all, on a Saturday night, I went to see, I had seen her act in An Awful Rose at the, uh, the night I had a season at that little theatre. I can't remember what it was called in Randwick. Uh, doesn't matter what it was called. Uh, and I thought she was very good, but then I went to see her in uh, Don's party on the Saturday night, in which she won the best, either best actress or best supporting actress award. And you know, it's only it's only in Australia was never offered another film role, best supporting or best actress. I can't remember which. Probably the supporting never offered another film role. And, and then I had them as Hamlet and Gertrude in, in Hamlet. But she, there were, she was a wonderful actor. I adored working with her. She lived in the house uh, that we had rented from Margaret Ollie. 
uh, it is absolutely true to say I never had one crossword with her on the rehearsal floor, in the theatre, or outside either. We got on like two houses on fire. And if I'd listened to people, I wouldn't have taken her. She was just wonderful. I thought she was a marvellous actor. You've got to trust your gut, don't you? You do. We had a falling out, unfortunately, because um, when I did Happy and Holy Occasion for the Sydney Theatre Company, I'd cast her as as Breeder, the role that Kerry Walker had played. And uh, I'd been to see Hamlet. I saw Hamlet the night she had had lunch with her mother and was drunk and playing one of the, not Hamlet, Macbeth, playing one of the witches said, call it, with a, and so she was fired, unfortunately, as the stage manager reports, so she was drunk. And somehow or other she thought that was my fault, that I could not employ her. I wasn't allowed to employ her, which I understand. Um, so I had uh, Sandy Gore, who was very good too. I had a strange experience. Well, I loved doing a happy and holy occasion. In fact, what happened was, I've told you that I said I hadn't read it and then forgot about it. Around about the middle of the year, I had a call from Rob Jordan at the university saying, We've received a grant from the Australia Council of $500 to put on a performance of Happy and Holy Occasion. Would you come up here and direct it for us? And I said, well, let me read it. Oh, I went up to talk to them and I, I, I took back to my room. My poor, poor, wonderful, wonderful secretary accountant called Wynne Beaton, with whom I could not have managed, without whom I could not have managed. She died a few years ago. I was rather surprised. We were sitting, I had my desk there, she there, and we both had our backs to each other. And she heard this muffled sobbing. I was in tears reading the play. And I wrote a letter to John, thus beginning a correspondence, which I wish I had kept. Because we would talk and then he had put down my ideas on paper to say this is what I understand for it. And I'd love people to read the original show and, and then read it as it became. That wonderful um, ragamuffin, uh, wonderful writer, Barry Dickens. I did a production, I've done it. I did it in the, the, the world premiere in Newcastle then in Sydney for the SDC, and then in Melbourne, each time with a different set for um, Playbox. And wonderful Barry Dickens wrote to the age and said, just about the best play I've ever seen, which I thought was them such generosity. One of the things that worries me about the theatre is that actors, an ungenerous actor is a bad actor. Actors give of themselves all the time. It is the most generous of professions. And not only do they give it, they give their, their, their bodies, their voice, their experience, their imagination, their emotions. They give it all. And yet, the, on the whole, the profession is not a generous profession. And that is why I'm so grateful to, and I choose to exalt Arnie Nemi for 
his generosity. He let me direct a hard God. Mm. I know he would love to have. I don't know why he let me, but he did. You don't find that generosity in many artistic directors. In fact, whereas actors are generous, directors, I'm afraid, on the whole, are too often, I won't say on the whole always, I mean, too often not generous. I won't develop that theme. <laughs> <laughs> How long did you lead the Hunter Valley Theatre Company? Uh, 76, 77. I think I left around about March 78. Honestly, I can't remember. It's quite a short period. Oh, yeah. Two, two years or two in a fraction. Why did you leave? I think the season at the Hunter Theatre had brought us to our knees financially. And in a sense, it was bound to, I come to now I kind of think of it, because of the, the expense of hiring a theater. I think it was a mistake on my part. There was a, there was a, actually, there was a clink. Oh, oh, then, I can't remember the name of the man and his wife, but they had a, a nightclub in, not a nightclub, a, a theater restaurant. In, in the main street and they asked us to do a couple of shows. We did the, the Rip Roaring Twenties show, we did the um, sort of a, a Victorian melodrama sort of a show. And, and I have to say both Alan Beecher and uh, Ms Bishop stayed on for at least one of them. Maybe we did three as the Hunter Valley Theatre Company and so we were all paid for it. I, I, I and others wrote it. Uh, I directed it. If there was a, and I think I played the piano, um, which I'd done before. I hadn't act. I didn't act there, but I did play the piano uh, for two other things. Uh, for our second show, I did Hamlet on Ice, and after our season at the university, I said to the um, workers' club, which had a huge membership. We'd like to hire the theatre. He said, oh, well, you don't hire it. Uh, but everyone, no one will pay more than $2. So we had a, several shows there, $2 or so in a big space. And without that, the Hunter Valley Theatre Company would not have kept on. Mm. And the following year, I put in another show to go around the clubs. And I did uh, something called the Sporting Double. It was John Milson's idea, he'd done it in Perth, of putting together the Roy Murphy show and a play about um, Les Darcy, the Les Darcy show. And we made the mistake of going to Cessnock, where Les Darcy's younger brother still lives, and he persuaded the club. He said it was an offensive play, it insulted his mother, and, and the club said private event private event <laughs> should have sued them <laughs> strange days um but good days but good days, good days wonderful days and wonderful friendships robert tony kerry um michael rolf didn't stay after equus i should have said that equus I probably directed the only production of Equus in the world to have lost money. 
not because the audiences didn't come, but because I suppose of the expense. It wasn't an expensive production as far as expensive productions go, but maybe the hire of the theatre. I don't think we lost much. It's possible we actually made a slight amount, but we certainly, it wasn't the money spent I hoped it would be. Probably I did it in the wrong venue. Maybe I'm not commercial. That's showbiz. <laughs> That's showbiz, yes. <laughs> Terry, thank you for uh, this uh, companion episode. I think we've covered a lot of ground. I've covered far too much and talked too much. <laughs> I seem to be on automatic. Have we, co- <laughs> have we covered the right ground? Yes, I think so. You're still an avid audience goer, aren't you? I am. I am. And uh, as I said, the last thing I saw was Hamilton in Melbourne, which where I did become a member of the audience, although every now and then a member of the profession because I don't think I'd ever seen such lighting. Mm, brilliant. It's extraordinary lighting. Mm, good stuff. With effects I'd never seen before. Then... <laughs> The end. I could call, you've got me wound up, I could keep on talking. You could keep on going, but there's only so much tape in the machine. Oh, you, so oh I thought I might have exhausted that. No, no, no. But do you, I think there'll be a bit of editing. How long did it go on for? Uh, we've, we've chatted for about uh, just over an hour, an hour, an hour and 20. But that's right. It is such a privilege to record episodes like these. History, passion, insight and joy. Terence Clark has contributed enormously to the theatre in Australia and is one of our cherished elders. I very much appreciate his generosity of time and anecdote in recording this episode. There's always something new for us to learn, so if you enjoyed this conversation, you're bound to enjoy many more from the Stages Archive. You'll find conversations with Reg Livermore and Chloe Delamore, just to name a few more. (laughs) You get the gist. Tell your friends they can find the podcast on Spotify, Wooshka or Apple Podcasts and also from where you access your favourite podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you can receive each new episode as it drops. Take the time to rate and review the podcast also, please, and share it with your friends. Don't forget the Stages podcast is being featured in this year's Vivid Sydney Festival program with a three-evening series of conversations with leading arts practitioners. Come down to the Powerhouse Museum and be in the audience for Stages Live on June 2nd, 9th and or 16th. It would be great to have the chance to say hello and be a part of the recording of these exciting episodes. I'll be talking to Carmen Pavlovich, Jennifer Irwin and Julie Lynch and also Declan Green. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe and I'll catch you next time on Stages. Stages.